It's official. The gas has stopped. Happy Media New Year, everybody. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And what a time to be in mining. Again, like I started working in this business in 2012. And I tell you, mining has never been so central. It's like we were into mining before it was cool. And now mining is getting a little more popular, isn't it? I thought this episode, we could just take a comprehensive survey as much as we can and just look at the news and not just on the Northern Miner and Mining.com, although Mining.com, I tell you, covers a lot of the news. It has the Bloomberg and the Reuters mining feeds, so they go a long way towards covering our comprehensive view of the mining industry as we stare out in Q3 into Q4 and just seeing what to make of all of this. I mean, this is a time of just kind of stepping back and taking stock of what is going on here as our new year begins. So I thought we could do that. And I mean, there are some astonishing stories. I mean, if the West and the East or the Global South and the capital W West are to bifurcate, which seems just, I don't want to call it a foregone conclusion, but nothing we're doing and nothing they're doing is leading to a rapprochement, as our French friends say. Nothing is leading in that direction. If anything, I mean, I just, I, I missed the story. Maybe you saw it. Probably the Canadian listeners saw it, but maybe a lot of the international listeners didn't. I mean, I was surprised. Now Canadian parliamentarians are going to Taiwan. So, you know, and meanwhile, as we open this program with, the gas has stopped. So everything points to higher tensions, not a detente. I mean, the only positive thing I see in, you might say, energy prices is maybe they've gone parabolic. So maybe that is a harbinger that things will crash, which sounds crazy, but, and you can start to put together all your scenarios on how that might happen, economic crisis, who knows, which is starting to feel a little more real than it did, you know, in the middle of our rally there, bear market or not. So anyways, there's a lot to figure out. So I figure let's just scan the headlines. Let's go through this. And I've kind of grouped them together with kind of a geopolitics and metals. And we have a bit of space, like people are going into space looking for metals, this Artemis thing. Part of it is to do with mining. We're going to take a look at that. People are starting to question the deep sea mining. Maybe we should be going there. And Also, these metals exchanges, I'm trying to just dig up some information on that. So I'm going to share you what I found there. There's a surprising amount of kind of violence and tragedy going on. Like when you actually go out there and look for mine stories, I found a surprising amount. And so you tell me what you think. And also, I mean, South Korea is apparently furious with the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act and where they're offering a $7,500 tax credit, I think for buying American or something. We'll look at that story too. So put it this way, as I was thinking to myself when I woke up this morning having a coffee, it feels to me, and I hope this isn't too pessimistic, it feels to me if we just kind of get through this whole turmoil and of, uh, for lack of a better word, tumult, if we get through it, just kind of 
with everything intact, more or less, I think we can call that a victory. Without any major catastrophe happening, to me, that's a victory because it's not looking great, is it? I, I mean, and maybe I'm too pessimistic here. I don't want to be. I mean, again, on a positive front, I think Canada stands to benefit almost the most out of anybody here, at least in the West. I mean, maybe Australia. Like, who has what everybody needs? And that's Canada. I mean, Canada, talk about an opportunity, you know, under dire circumstances. But wow, like, I mean, and I've mentioned this in like an episode, maybe 50 episodes ago. Like, when you consider the resources that Canada has, you know, middle power, as it's often called or described as a country, to me is insufficient. If Canada, really starts to kind of get its act together on resources. And what does that mean? Basically, remove a lot of the impediments, whether that's just making partnerships faster, uh, getting everybody on board, maybe lessening mining permitting times, probably the biggest criticism I hear from junior miners of the, say, current policy. Like, if, if these things start to get ameliorated, I mean, Canada really stands to benefit here, like in a major way. So we're going to travel around the world today. I'm going to experiment with the format a bit. My guess didn't work out, uh, kind of a Labor Day weekend thing, and this just happens once in a while. But as that great saying goes that you see in London, when you go to the Canadian Mining Symposium, which I'm starting to hear things, so maybe we'll get an announcement at some point, You'll hear it here first, but there is a statue there of a famous general whose name I don't remember that says defeat into victory. One of my favorite sayings, turn defeat into victory. And so that's what I'm trying to do here today with you, my friend, dear listener. And I'm going to try and get us a nice up-to-date view of what is going on. Your file, your presidential summary. Okay, so that is my goal here. So I'm going to go from here to metal prices. But first, before I do that, you can still get tickets for the Mining Legends Speaker Series luncheon taking place in Vancouver on September 8th. Now, that is on Thursday. Today is Tuesday. So if you're listening to this, you do not have much time and there are not many tickets left from what I saw. So if you just go to events.northernminer.com and press on the Mining Legends Speaker Series luncheon, you can go for a three-course gourmet lunch from 10.30 to 1 for $85 in Vancouver and see Robert Quartermain and Andre St. Germain is a -a one-of-a-kind networking opportunity that you will want to go to reserve your seat for this limited access event. There are not infinite tickets. They have to figure everything out. It is late in the day, my friends. So events.northernminer.com. And also while you're there, you can see... We have the Q3 Global Mining Symposium coming up, and that is September 28th and 29th, and you can register your interest as well. Just go to events.northernminer.com, and it features Douglas Silver, mineral economist, keynote speaker, and author, and Chris Taylor, who some of you might remember as the CEO and president of Great Bear Resources, which was acquired by Kinross in February for $1.8 billion dollars. And many, many more, Dr. Aaron Bobicki, George Hemingway, 
Jean-Marc Lacoste, CEO of Monarch Mining, Jonathan Lafontaine. So it looks like another awesome event. And again, keep a heads up for the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. We're going to go into metal prices and then we're going to go into about, you know, 30 minutes of news or so and see if we can get you a nice, fancy presidential summary, a banquet of information for you to enjoy and give you what we all crave in this world, which is perspective. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You find us on Twitter, at northernminer, and on Instagram, at the Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Metal Prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just start with the 10-year bond for context. And we're seeing pretty dramatic movement there. On September 6th, it is trading at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is yielding 3.328%. So this is 0.26% higher. So probably something to worry about somewhere. So definitely flashing some kind of warning that's pretty high. So big move over there. Now let's see what's going on in metals. And we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on September 6th, gold is trading at $1,708.84 per ounce. That is $26 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $18.27 per ounce. That is... 46 cents lower than last week. Platinum is also down at $859.49 per ounce. That is $7 lower than last week. And palladium is also down at $2,021.48 per ounce. That is $106 lower. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.44 per pound. That is 23 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.05 per pound. That is three cents lower than two weeks ago. Last week's number, we had aluminum alloy, so we don't have that number. Lead is trading five cents lower at 86 cents per pound. Nickel is trading 60 cents lower at $9.16 per pound. Tin is trading at $9.84 per pound. That is $1.25 lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound, and zinc is lower at $1.43 per pound. That is $0.24 lower. So zooming out, I see risk-off and fear across the board, except for in bond yields, which is interesting. I mean, generally, when there's fear in the market, bond yields go down because there is more demand in a risk-off trade to hide in the safety of bonds, but we are not seeing that here. So it seems as though the metals, again, are feeling a little bit of fear or a little bit of concern about growth, while bond yields are worrying about inflation. So that one's a bit of a riddle for me, I have to admit. In a sense, like, yeah, where is all the money going? 
So more just, I, to me, this is a little mysterious. I, so how we explain that, I mean, maybe there is no correlation here between the bond market and the metals, but the metals seem to be saying deflation while the bond market seems to be saying inflation. I mean, you may have a completely different take. If you do, leave us a comment on YouTube or SoundCloud or on the website because that is an interesting setup here. And those are your metal prices. And turning to our news stories, we're going to start with this story from Bloomberg News via mining.com. Metal plants feeding Europe's factories face an existential crisis. And it says here in the aluminum industry, closing a smelter is an agonizing decision. Once power is cut and the production pots settle back to room temperature, it can take many months and tens of millions of dollars to bring them back online. Yet, Norsk Hydro ASA is preparing this month to do exactly that at a huge plant in Slovakia. And it's not the only one. European production has dropped to the lowest level since the 1970s. And industry insiders say the escalating energy crisis is now threatening to create an extinction event across large swaths of the region's aluminum production. The explanation lies in aluminum's nickname, quote, congealed electricity. We discussed this on an earlier show from Javier Blas's book, The World for Sale. He's an excellent follow on Twitter, by the way. The metal, used in a huge range of products from car frames and soda cans to ballistic missiles, is produced by heating raw materials until they dissolve and then running an electric current through the pot, making it massively power intensive. One ton of aluminum requires about 15 megawatt hours of electricity enough to power five homes in Germany for a year. So again, there's no divorcing, to state the obvious, there's no divorcing metals from energy. Some smelters are protected by government subsidies, long-term electricity deals, or access to their own renewable power, but the rest face an uncertain future. Quote, history has proven once aluminum smelters go away, they don't come back, said Mark Hansen, chief executive of metals trading house Concord Resources. Quote, there is an argument which extends beyond employment. This is an important base metal commodity. It goes into aircraft, weapons, transport, and machinery. End quote. As production drops, the hundreds of European manufacturers that turn metal into parts for German cars or French airplanes are left increasingly reliant on imports that could get costlier. Some buyers are also trying to avoid metal from Russia, which is usually a big supplier to Europe. And just a couple more paragraphs. We have a million stories to go through here. The industry says it urgently needs government support to survive. However, any measures like fixed price caps to keep power-hungry plants running may be difficult to justify while consumers face soaring power bills and the threat of rationing and blackouts loom. The woes of the aluminum sector offer a striking example of what's playing out in Europe's energy-intensive industries across the continent. Fertilizer makers, cement plants, steel mills, and zinc smelters are also shutting down rather than pay eye-watering prices for gas and electricity. Most worryingly for the region's manufacturing sector, it may not simply be a case of shutting down for the winter. Power prices for 2024 and 2025 have also soared, threatening the long-term viability of many industries. You know, it's like Europe and the West tried to destroy Russia's economy, so... Now Russia is trying to destroy Europe's economy, and they just happen to run the energy. At recent market prices, the annual power bill for the Slovalko smelter would be around 2 billion euros, according to CEO Milan Bezeli. Slovalko decided to mothball the plant due to a combination of surging energy prices and a lack of emissions compensation 
that is available to smelters elsewhere in the block. Quote, this is a genuine existential crisis, end quote, said Paul Voss, Director General of European Aluminum, which represents the region's biggest producers and processors. He continues, we really need to sort something quite quickly, otherwise there will be nothing left to fix. And then finally, let's just look at some of the numbers here. In Germany, the power needed to produce a ton of aluminum would have cost roughly $4,200 in the spot market on Friday, after topping more than $10,000 last month, according to Bloomberg. The London Metals Exchange futures price was around $2,300 a ton on Friday. That means curtailments look set to accelerate for the winter. Wow. So just to clear up what those numbers said. So the power needed to produce a ton of aluminum in Germany would cost roughly $4,200 this previous Friday, after topping more than $10,000. Yet on the LME, future prices were around $2,300 a ton. So basically, the energy to create aluminum is almost double the price of aluminum. So go figure that out. So we have a ton of stories to get through here. So let's go to the next one. ArcelorMittal to shut blast furnace in German plant as gas prices soar. So a similar story. We don't need to go into all of them, but let's just read a couple of paragraphs here. Just to give us a sense, ArcelorMittal said on Friday it would switch off one of two furnaces at its steelworks in the German city of Bremen until further notice from September end, citing the soaring cost of gas, weak market demand, and a negative economic outlook. The world's second largest steelmaker said it had also shut down the direct reduction plant at its Hamburg steel factory from the fourth quarter of this year, while keeping workers on shorter hours at both sites. Quote, The high costs for gas and electricity are putting a heavy strain on our competitiveness. On top of that, from October onwards, there will be the German government's planned gas levy, which will further burden us. With a tenfold increase in gas and electricity prices, which we had to accept within a few months, we are no longer competitive in a market that is 25% supplied by imports. We see an urgent need for political action to get energy prices under control immediately. So... ArcelorMittal shuts down a furnace in German plant, continuing on. Now, this was interesting too, just on this whole European energy business, Ursula von der Leyen put out a tweet where she commented on the devastating attacks in Saskatchewan, the deadly attacks, shocking attacks. This is a tweet by Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission. Dear Justin Trudeau, dear Canadian people, Europe mourns with you. I hope the perpetrators will soon be apprehended and brought to justice. I will pay my tribute to the victims when I'm in Saskatoon in two weeks. So Ursula von der Leyen, in the middle of an energy crisis in Europe, goes to Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, my hometown. And what do we have in Saskatoon? Well, we have Cameco, we have uranium, and we have wheat, we have potash, and actually I believe we have oil as well. So, yeah. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen is going to Saskatchewan. In a sense, it's sort of like, you know, those who will be first will be last, and those who will be last will be first. And Saskatchewan, like, I don't think Ursula von der Leyen is going to Saskatoon for a vacation. Continuing on, now Germany, we're starting with Europe and we're going around the world, by the way, just because Europe is such a, I mean, this is historic, of course. So Germany also, this is via Bloomberg News, to keep nuclear plants in reserve to ease energy crisis. So they are keeping two of its three remaining nuclear power plants on reserve in the event that they're needed to make up for a shortfall 
in electricity generation this winter, reversing a long-planned shutdown of the facilities. Quote, this way we can act if worse comes to worst. Economy Minister Robert Habeck said Monday in an emailed statement, adding that the government remains, quote, committed to the nuclear exit. And just two days before, the German Greens were denying this report. This came out a couple of days earlier. Also, Bloomberg via mining.com, Germany's Green Party denied a report that it will back a plan allowing some of the nation's nuclear power plants to continue operating beyond a previous set phase-out date as the nation confronts its worst energy shortage in decades. So it's interesting. So the Green Party a few days before was saying this report that they were going to extend the life of the nuclear plants was inaccurate. And then three days later, <laughs> the economy minister says, we may have to do this. We are keeping two of the three online just in case. Now, the argument of the economy minister and Baerbock, the foreign minister of Germany, who is a green, they cite France's recent problems with its reactors as evidence that nuclear energy is unreliable and say it's not the answer to Europe's supply woes. Quote, the fact that some people are now presenting nuclear power as our savior and as the solution to all problems is also ridiculous, Habeck said in an interview with Bloomberg on August 28th. So, yeah. Now, then there's this Russian oil price cap, and Russia has said that the G7 was proposing, and Russia has said they will respond to oil price caps by shipping more to Asia, according to the Russian energy minister. So this is Reuters, and they're saying that Russia will respond to price caps on Russian oil by shipping more supply to Asia. Its energy minister, Nikolai Shulkinov, told reporters at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok on Tuesday. And this is the thing. People said, oh, well, during World War II and during the Cold War, Russia continued to supply gas to Europe, but they probably didn't have China and India as an option at that time in the same way that they do today. So they do have more options, I would think. Quote, any actions to impose a price cap will lead to deficit on initiating countries' own market and will increase price volatility. This is according to Reuters' report here. Finance ministers of the United States, Germany, Italy, Japan, Great Britain, France, and Canada gave a green light last week to the idea of capping the price of Russian crude to reduce Moscow's revenue in response to its invasion of Ukraine. I mean, a lot of people think this is a bit of a half-baked idea. I'm kind of one of them, but I don't know exactly how the I don't know how these markets work technically. So maybe they do think they have some sort of. Uh, way of doing it. Also, finally, Europe's energy crunch squeezes world's largest particle collider. So CERN is drafting plans to idle its particle accelerators, including the Large Hadron Collider, if France runs short of electricity. That was according to the Wall Street Journal. So just a quick update on Europe there. Now, just moving to Taiwan briefly, and we're going to get to more mining-related stories, but these are just important backdrops to this whole landscape, as we all know. So in case you missed it, I missed it. Uh, U.S. announces $1.1 billion arms sale to Taiwan, angering China. So that was on September 3rd, so weekend that just passed. Again, ratcheting up tensions there. We have an interesting story on Bloomberg. Singapore ex-diplomat warns to not underestimate China on Taiwan. People don't realize how serious this game is, Yo says. Yo was Singapore's foreign minister between 2004 and 2011. It's by Philip Hagemans. And just a few paragraphs here. Singapore's former top diplomat warned on Monday 
that a conflict in Taiwan would trigger a Chinese response akin to the U.S. reaction to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor that precipitated its entrance into World War II. Foreign Minister George Yeo told Bloomberg Television without naming anyone that people don't understand just how deep an issue Taiwan is for China and underestimate the severity of a conflict if one were to come. Already fraught ties between the U.S. and China have continued to deteriorate since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visited the self-governing island last month. Quote, if there is a conflict over Taiwan, let us say that China loses the first few battles, gets bloodied. It will evoke in the Chinese body politic a reaction as profound as that in the U.S. of Pearl Harbor. This is that serious, and people who do not know the history do not realize the game they're playing. And he continues, there are people who think that Taiwan is a card to be played. They don't realize how serious this game is. For China, it's deeply emotional. So a former Brigadier General, Yeo served in Singapore's government for 23 years, including as its top envoy between 2004 and 2011. So big warning there. Also a former Taiwan defense chief is being concerned about the country's strategy. Taiwan's military struggles to adapt as China threat grows. Former defense chief warns that slow pace of reform has diluted asymmetric strategy. You can read that on the Financial Times. So again, just trying to color our backdrop here. And finally, one more on Taiwan before we move to metals. China warns of forceful measures if Canada interferes in Taiwan. Canadian lawmakers plan trade visit to Taipei in October. So more gasoline on the fire here. This is according to Nikkei Asia. Now, another interesting story. This is from the Moscow Times, so we don't necessarily want to believe it, but it's an interesting headline that we just note in passing. Russian gold rerouted to China amid Western ban. I mean, I don't think that's a crazy story to believe. So the West bans Russia's gold, which I think I remember Biden saying a couple of months ago. And according to the Moscow Times, that's going to be sent to China now. Okay. And I was also seeing reports of major increases in Chinese gold. And this kind of feeds into this whole idea that if we get a currency reset, which doesn't sound as sci-fi as it did five years ago, gold is going to be very important. Another just interesting tidbit. This is from a story from Zaoya. So again, I'm not familiar with this website, but the headline was interesting. Found in Google News, by the way, though. Asia Gold China premiums spike. In Shanghai, gold was priced as much as $25 an ounce over the international gold prices, the highest since December 2016. And this was from September 2nd. So I've heard someone comment just today that this could be a way of attracting gold to China by increasing the premiums, that this would attract gold. I don't know if that's true. I'm definitely not an expert in that, but kind of an interesting idea. So here we have a little bit of evidence that there was a premium uh, just the other day. Continuing on, heavy China platinum imports spur shortages elsewhere, according to WPIC, and this is Reuters via mining.com. WPIC is the World Platinum Investment Council, and they are saying that stronger than expected shipments of platinum to China in the first half of the year spurred shortages elsewhere. They're not saying where, as supply declined for mines and recycling the World Platinum Investment Council said on Monday. It was difficult to track what happened to some of the Chinese imports, so the platinum market was in surplus on paper, 
But on-the-ground tightness sent lease rates surging to the highest levels in a decade, the WPIC said in its latest quarterly report. I mean, Paul from the Sirius report was saying last week this discrepancy. A lot of people have been commenting on it, including Saudi Arabia. Okay, it's people think there's something funny going on in the paper markets. Quote, and this is a quote from Trevor Raymond, the WPIC head of research, Quote, it certainly is weird to have a really big surplus published, yet unavailability of metal in the spot market. So we're seeing more evidence for this discrepancy between the paper and the physical market. And we have another quote from him. While speculative flows are certainly part of it, there also seems to be more consumption, but we can't prove it. And it's frustrating that it doesn't appear in our supply demand data. And you see how this screws up, like we saw in that earlier story where... To produce a ton of aluminum costed $4,200, and then the metal price is $2,300 for a ton of aluminum. So you see how things are getting screwed up here. Now, Moody's, we just saw with metal prices that they're pretty low. Moody's, we have a story from September 1st by Henry Lazenby, courtesy of the Northern Miner, that they cut metal price calls amid slowing global growth. So there's an explanation for our lower metal prices. Credit ratings firm Moody Investors Services has pared down its 12-month price outlook for a basket of metals and mining commodities, citing a global economic slowdown and softening demand. Essential commodities affected included gold, silver, steel, aluminum, and copper as slack demand dents global growth momentum. Quote, China is a major consumer of base metals, coal, and iron ore, and the largest steel producer globally said Barbara Matos, senior vice president with Moody's, in a media release. Quote, a slowdown in the country's economic growth would reduce demand across the metals and mining sector. Yet we just read a story on how China seems to be taking, what was that headline? Heavy China platinum imports spur shortages elsewhere. So, I mean, put it this way. Let's say, for the sake of argument, there is funny business going on in the paper markets. What do you do if you're China? I think you take full advantage of it and you say, hey, no problem. We're buying. You want to discount our price for us? Fantastic. We'll buy it all up. So interesting. Now there's a story from South Korea who sees, quote, betrayal, end quote, in Biden's electric vehicle push. This is courtesy of Bloomberg News via mining.com. South Korea views new U.S. rules that favor American-made electric vehicles and batteries as a, quote, betrayal, end quote. A senior official in Seoul said, an issue that threatens to complicate economic and security cooperation between the close allies. Just what we needed. The dispute stems from provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act signed last month by President Joe Biden, which includes tax credits of as much as $7,500 for purchases of electric vehicles made in North America. That could disadvantage major South Korean brands like Hyundai and Kia, which don't have operational EV plants in the U.S. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol's government views the measures as unfair after a string of big U.S. investment announcements by the country's companies, said the official, who asked not to be identified, discussing internal deliberations. While Seoul hasn't decided to tie cooperation on the issue to other items on the U.S.'s economic agenda, that couldn't be ruled out, the official said. So they're really making them mad. And scrolling down a bit, we have a quote from Cheon 
Xiong Won, a former security strategy secretary under former conservative president Park Geun-hee, and he said, quote, South Korea may consider the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, like being stabbed in the back. After putting in that much amount of investments, the South Korean administration, as well as its public, expected the same amount of economic benefits back from the U.S. in the form of market accessibility. Yoon's office said it is, quote, working closely with Washington in different levels, end quote, for a swift and smooth settlement. So just another kind of backdrop as we head into the fourth quarter here. Now, this is interesting. We have a string of stories of partnerships between car companies and basically miners. So another story from Reuters via mining.com, Honda forms partnership to secure supply of battery metals. Honda Motor Company has formed a partnership with trading company Hanwha to secure stable supply of metals used in batteries for electric vehicles, the Japanese automaker said on Tuesday. So I guess they're like a Glencore of sorts if they're a trading company, I'm guessing. Honda will be able to obtain essential metals such as nickel, cobalt, and lithium through the partnership in the medium to long term, it said in a statement. Honda said it had picked Hanwha for its strength in resource procurement. So this isn't with a mining company, but with a resource procurement company. They're, I guess they're traders again. And another story from Reuters, VW aims to take stakes in Canadian mines and mine operators, according to Handelsblatt. Volkswagen aims to enter the mining business in Canada to ensure its raw material supply for battery production, a board member of the German carmaker told Handelblatt Daily. We are not opening any mines of our own, but we want to acquire stakes in Canadian mines and mine operators, Thomas Schmall told the Daily on Tuesday. Schmall added that Canada had virtually all the raw materials needed for battery production. A memorandum of understanding to this effect is to be signed with the Canadian government later on Tuesday. So this is from August 23rd. So I'm not sure if that was that German-Canadian visit. But I mean, again, this is just a string of announcements here. Tesla visits graphite mine and factory in Quebec. It's by Fred Lambert from electric.co. Tesla has recently visited Nouveau Mons graphite mine and processing factory in Quebec as the automaker is increasingly looking to establish a factory in Canada. Nouveau Monde Graphite is a Quebec-based company developing a graphite mine and processing facility to supply automakers and battery manufacturers with the critical material for creating the anode part of a battery cell. And scrolling down the article, it comes as we just learned of a visit from Tesla in Canada to meet Valet's nickel operations in the country. And a local media report stated that Tesla took the opportunity to scout factory sites in Quebec and Ontario at the same time. I'm telling you, Canada is poised to benefit immensely from this chaos that's going on here, from this geopolitical tumult. And this is oilprice.com, UK in the running for $8 billion battery gigafactory. Prologium, a Taiwanese lithium battery manufacturer, is scouting for the location of its first major European gigafactory. The factory is expected to be one of the continent's biggest, and the UK is currently in the running alongside France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Poland for the hub. The Gigafactory is expected to cost $8 billion. So just a few points there. So that's the car manufacturer side of things. And again, this kind of securing supply seems to be incredibly important. And Canada just looks like poised. Quick bit on this Artemis 1 moon mission. 
Artemis 1 mission marks the start of a new space race to mine the moon. This is according to Space.com, Cassandra Steer at Space.com. And if you scroll down, water ice has been found in the southern regions of the moon, and it is hoped certain gases that can be used for fuels can also be mined. These resources could be used to support long-term human habitation on and near the moon in lunar bases, as well as permanent space stations orbiting the moon, such as NASA's planned gateway. The Australian Space Agency is supporting Australian industry to be part of the Artemis program and America's planned later voyages to Mars. Australian scientists are also developing lunar rovers to assist lunar mining efforts. Eventually, what we learn on the moon will be used to advance to Mars, but in the near term, the countries and associated commercial entities that get to the best mining sites first will dominate an emerging lunar economy and lunar politics. Now, just a final point on this. The 1967 Outer Space Treaty prohibits appropriation in space, quote, by claims of sovereignty, occupation, or by any other means, end quote. It is so far unclear whether mining or other forms of resource extraction fall under this prohibition. I mean, the way everybody is acting on both sides of the bifurcation is whatever's expedient. If this treaty from 1967 gets in the way, even to the West, the so-called rules-based order, I think they'll just throw it out and they'll start mining it. Like, I don't, that's my take on that. Um, and conversely, we have this story from CBC, pressure is on to start mining the deep sea. Is it worth it? Vancouver-based The Metals Company wants to be the first to mine the seafloor for critical minerals. And this is who used to be Deep Green Metals and who previously was Nautilus. So they've changed their name a couple of times here, maybe because of protests. I'm not sure. A quick look at this story. A battle is brewing over the future of the ocean floor that pits the fate of this little-known ecosystem against humanity's demand for critical minerals. And a Vancouver company is leading the charge, The Metals Company formerly known as Deep Green Metals, wants to mine potato-sized rocks known as polymetallic nodules, which contain metals in demand for electric vehicles, solar panels, and more. These nodules lay on the sea floor, some four to six kilometers below the surface and outside the jurisdiction of any country, where the regulatory body, the International Seabed Authority, has issued exploration permits but never allowed commercial mining. Despite more than a decade of discussion, the ISA hasn't yet created regulations to let deep-sea mining happen. So... More deep sea mining. Now, a huge story that we haven't discussed yet is the Chilean market and sharply higher after voters reject the new constitutions. This is also Reuters via mining.com. So Chile has rejected their new constitution, which had much stronger rules on the environment and on community engagement. Let's just look at this. Chile's stock market staged a strong rally before pairing gains at the close on Monday, a day after Chileans rejected a proposed new constitution, while the top copper-producing nation's peso firmed as its government prepares to draft a likely more moderate text. Chileans voted overwhelmingly on Sunday to reject what would have been one of the world's most progressive charters and a sharp shift from its market-friendly constitution, dating back to Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship. And scrolling down a bit, the referendum was also seen as a evaluation of the government, which is struggling with buoyant inflation, an economic slowdown, and an internal security crisis, according to experts. So a bit of a respite for Chile's miners. Also in South America, Nexa Resources halts Peruvian zinc mine due to blockade. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Latin American-focused Nexa Resources has halted its Atoka 
San Gerardo open pit zinc mine in Peru due to a road blockade by a local community. The zinc producer controlled by Brazilian holding company Vodorantim SA called the disruption illegal and said that activities are limited to critical operations with a minimum workforce to ensure proper maintenance. A March road blockade at the same mine cost the miner 300 tons of lost zinc production, but it did not affect its full year 2022 zinc production guidance. This blockade, according to them, it will not affect their annual output of 118,000 to 127,000 tons for this year. Now, also a story from the northernminer.com by Blair McBride, spending details of $3.8 billion critical mineral strategy expected in fall. So back up to Canada, details of how the federal government plans to spend its multi-billion dollar critical mineral strategy will be announced sometime in the fall, says Natural Resources Canada. The strategy was announced in April as part of the budget 2022 and earmarks up to $3.8 billion over eight years starting in 2022 and 2023 to advance critical mineral exploration, development, and supply chains. In an email to the Northern Miner, Natural Resources Canada spokesman Anthony Ertl said there is not yet a forecast date for the strategy's release. And the release of the spending strategy will follow the closure on September 15th of a consultation period that began on June 14th. So it sounds like they're still working out how they're going to allocate. Again, like with everything on the table, I know $3.8 billion might have sounded like a lot at first, but kind of like, why aren't we 10xing that? Like, let's put $30 billion into it. I mean, at least it's to get real wealth out of the ground, you know. Another North American new U.S. climate law could lead to a mining renaissance in Alaska. This is according to Anchorage Daily News. So this was part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is ramping up interest in Alaska and focusing attention on the state's mining prospects as a possible source for many of those minerals. The law passed last month without Republican votes, provides tax breaks that industry observers say could lead to more mining in the U.S. and Alaska. They include a 10% tax write-off of operational costs for U.S. companies producing critical minerals. A little bit on these... Metals exchanges, kind of dicey stories here. Uh, We're going around the world. We're checking out these metals exchanges. Let's just see what we find here. So on the 18th of August, we have a headline from Bloomberg. China is ramping up Swiss gold imports, signaling better demand. Swiss flows to China were 80 tons in July, the most since 2016. So back to this idea that China is importing more gold. And then we have this headline from Kitco, China's gold imports from Russia surged 750% in July. So this kind of goes along with that story that we saw in the Moscow Times, that Russia is sending its gold to China. Well, that seems to make sense based on this August 30th Kitco story by Anna Golubova. So we piece things together here. Another story, this is from a couple of weeks ago on the LME, London Metal Exchange suspends Russian nickel from UK warehouses. So that suspension has happened August 16th, almost a month ago. August 15th, LME nickel volumes plunge with exchange still hostage to March trading fiasco. That is also a Reuters headline. And then we have a September 5th analysis, nickel meltdown puts spotlight on LME's search powers. And so now they are putting in new rules to boost transparency. So the credibility they lost after the nickel price spike and them halting trading and reversing trades, they are still feeling the impacts of that. On the other side of things, Russia presents proposal to create new precious metals exchange. This is by valuewalk.com, who I've never heard of. So, you know, take it for what it is. 
Maybe you have. Moscow is proposing its own international standard of precious metals exchange, dubbed the Moscow World Standard, MWS. The MWS would compete with the London Bullion Market Association, which is one of the world's current leading gold, silver, platinum, and palladium exchanges. Moscow claims that the LBMA manipulates the precious metals market and artificially keeps prices low. Moscow believes this is an unfair practice that negatively affects precious metals exporters. So, just a story. Now, I can't tell, for all I know, and nothing against valuewalk.com, I just don't know what it is, but we have to take this as possible a front website. Like, unless you've heard of it, and then all apologies to ValueWalk. But they're talking about how this would work, and it says the committee would fix precious metal prices to national currencies. And it says here, according to the Russian finance ministry, quote, the basis of this new structure will be a new specialized international precious metals brokerage headquartered in Moscow, which will rely on the MWS, who will assemble a committee. This committee will include central banks and the most influential banks throughout the Eurasian Economic Union. Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan are the current members of the Eurasian Economic Union. This committee would fix precious metal prices to national currencies from member countries or to a new monetary unit for international trade, such as the newly proposed BRICS currency. Russian President Vladimir Putin believes that a new currency based on commodities will positively benefit member nations. Also, the Russian finance ministry wants to create a system that will attract other countries like India, China, Peru, Venezuela, and other countries in both South America and Africa. Additionally, Russia and its partners account for 57% of the world's controlling stake in gold. Because of this, Russia believes it can break up the monopoly of LBMA. With the inclusion of Venezuela and Peru, the stake would increase to 62%. Again, I don't know how reliable this article is, but I think it's an interesting story. And then we have to put our own analytical thinking caps on and just deal with this story. I mean, this is true for all stories. I mean, they are simply stories with different levels of credibility, but nevertheless, all stories. And further down this article... India joins the fight against LBMA with new exchange. Now, this article is from August 19th. India recently initiated the country's first international bullion exchange, IIBX, which will be located in a new central business district. This district is called Gujarat International Finance Tech City, Gift City, in Ahmedabad. Accordingly, Ahmedabad is the most populous city in the Indian state of Gujarat. The development marks India's first greenfield smart city, which blends eco-friendly elements and highly developed infrastructure. Indian Prime Minister Modi's objective with this exchange is to, quote, empower India to gain its rightful place in the global bullion market and serve the global value chain with integrity and quality. So, interesting story. We have a story from Bitcoin.com. Report claims Russia and Iran plan to establish a global gas cartel. Moscow to launch its own precious metals exchange. This is from August 26. So more corroborating evidence on that Moscow exchange. And then we had this weird story that showed up in Google News from CGTN, which again, I've never heard of. Moscow exchange halts trading in foreign exchange precious metals. And it's one paragraph. Moscow exchange halted trading in the foreign exchange market and the precious metals market from 10.50 a.m. Moscow time on Monday. So whatever that's about. And, and also now... Switching gears a little bit, and then we'll try and start to wrap this up. So mines are staying open for longer. This is from the Australian Associated Press, the AAP. New South Wales mine to extract more coal for longer. So there's a demand for coal. This is by Jack Grammons. Twice as much coal can be extracted 
from a New South Wales coal mine every year for longer after planning approvals. So they're expanding the mine in Australia. And here we have the Financial Times. Norway prolongs life of Arctic coal mine as energy crisis bites. And this is from September 2nd. Country's last coal mine on Svalbard Archipelago was slated to close next year, but will now remain in operation until 2025. So again, because of the European energy crisis. And then there is this other one, 85-year-old mine could reopen near Kenora in Canada. This is according to Kenora Online. The Tartisan Nickel Corporation has filed a preliminary economic assessment of their Kentbridge nickel property near Kenora, which is calling for a nine-year mine plan based on 1,500 tons of material per day with expected revenues of $837 million. But it'll cost them $133 million to revive the mine. So again, just extensions, reopenings, interesting. And finally, we have some stories, what I'd call disaster stories, for lack of a better word. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Valet BHP nearly double offer in mine disaster settlement. So this is referring to Samarco. Samarco and its owners, Valet and BHP Group, agreed to almost double their offer in compensation for a 2015 mine waste disaster in Brazil, according to people with knowledge of the matter who asked not to be named because the discussions are private. The mining companies raised the proposal to more than $19 billion after Brazilian authorities showed disappointment with the $10 billion offered. The new value is closer to the public civil action for reparation used by prosecutors as a benchmark. I mean, these companies are probably drowning in money right now. So they're probably saying, we'd rather fix this and just give you some of our profits. Mexico abandons hope to rescue miners as authorities plan to recover bodies. So a sad story from Reuters here. September 5th, Mexico City. Mexican authorities on Monday outlined an 11th month plan to search for and recover the bodies of 10 coal miners trapped underground a month ago. A quiet admission that they are giving up on ambitions of rescuing them alive. So a sad story out of Mexico. And this is from Nikkei Asia. Pakistan insurgents behind China attacks threaten Barrick gold mine. A Canadian gold giant's planned foray into Pakistan's rest of Southwest is shaping up to be a litmus test for the government's ability to attract and protect foreign investors. So it's talking about the Rico Dick mine and Barrick Gold, who has made a deal with the government, which is expected to close this month to be followed by a feasibility study. We've been covering that story. And production would likely start in five years, but the company has already found itself in the sights of Balok separatists, who have also been threatening Chinese assets in an effort to disrupt foreign investment that cash-strapped Pakistan sorely needs. An umbrella organization of four Balak insurgent groups called Brass issued a warning to the company, in other words, Barak, to either stay away from Balakistan's mineral resources or prepare for deadly attacks. So, pretty crazy story with Barak's Ricodic mine. And also with Barrick, they have just sold 22 royalties to Mavericks Metal for $60 million. It sounds pretty cheap, $60 million for 22 royalties. That's by Northern Miner staff. And Mavericks Metals is acquiring 22 royalties from Barrick Gold, including a 1% royalty on Skeena Resources' SK Creek Gold Silver Project in BC for $50 million in cash and a contingent consideration of up to $10 million. So... Interesting. A mine explodes in North Syria. This is by 
english.alarabi.co.uk. Mine explodes in North Syria, killing four young brothers. Another sad story. Four children were killed on Monday when a mine and explosives left inside an abandoned apartment went off in a rebel-held town in North Syria. And we have a tweet here from a reporter. Four children who are all siblings were killed in a mine blast inside the house they were living in in rebel-held North Syria, a relative told AFP. Yeah, so pretty sad over there. And Reuters has a report that Kanda's Mountain Province Diamonds says worker dies at Gachokwe Mine, just on September 2nd. And the contractor died due to injuries sustained in an incident at Gachokwe Mine in Canada's Northwest Territories. No details there. Uh, militants kill six in attack on convoy from Burkina Faso Gold Mine. And this is in Ouagadougou, August 27th. Unidentified gunmen killed six people and wounded two others in an attack on a convoy from the Bungu gold mine in eastern Burkina Faso, the army said on Saturday. So that's a bit of a hot spot, which has seen a few attacks over the years. So let's leave it there. I think that's a ton to just get your mind around. I just wanted to give you guys like 50 stories here to just kind of give you a sense an update, a true update on what's happening out there. And yeah, I'm sure there's many more stories out there, but I think that just gives us a better sense than when we started this program of where we are. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next week, take care.